Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Smart Cities Chronicles, your podcast for everything Smart Cities action, investment and outcomes. My name is Adam Beck. I'm your host of the Chronicles, and my day job is Executive Director at the Smart Cities Council here in Australia and New Zealand. Delighted to welcome you to episode 90 today, and we're going to jump into a topic that we have addressed once before on the Chronicles, which is 5G. For those that may remember uh, a while back, we looked at the 5G parliamentary inquiry that was undertaken in Australia. So somewhat of a process policy procedural related issue around 5G. But today, we're going to look at what it means for cities or what it might mean. And uh, with me as head of Smart City from Complete Urban, Ian Hatton. Ian, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Adam. So, Ian, let's uh, let's start off with a bit of uh, orientation on who you are and what you do. Our listeners are scattered all over the world. Can you share with us uh, what's your day job and what keeps you busy? Yeah, so from the 1st of July, I've become the principal uh, smart city advisory for a company called Complete Urban. So historically, over the last 20 years, Complete Urban specialises in designing uh, public realm. Uh, so it's a, it's a placemaking company. And the smart city component is uh, the latest evolution of the company because there's so much potential to put IoT technology and those kinds of things into public realm. But also, as we all know, telecommunications carriers move all, have all their equipment in public realm. And uh, the, the, the fast growth of wireless technologies means that you know, the public realm is going to be significantly affected in, in lots of hopefully good ways. So my background is a combination of government and private sector. I've, I've worked in urban regeneration in the UK, which is urban design, economic development, construction, master planning, all of that sort of thing. Uh, I set up a banking joint venture during the GFC to do small business lending. Uh, moved to Australia in 2010. Uh, worked on the Commonwealth Games, uh, joined Gold Coast City Council in 2016 and set up and delivered their Smart City program, which was a, a, a large scale telecommunications, Wi-Fi, IoT and data analytics program, uh, driven, driven largely by the Commonwealth Games initially and then became one of the leg legacy programs coming out of there, helping council to drive efficiencies and, and public benefits. Yeah, awesome. Well, no shortage of experience there and no doubt um, some great insights that we'll be able to uh, have you share with our listeners today. Ian, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with uh, where I think we probably should start, which is logical, which is sort of current state of play and, and, and where we're at. Now, we're going to keep this um, somewhat focused around uh, what 5G means for cities and, of course, as you've mentioned there, the importance of the public realm and um, the, the spaces and places that make up a significant part of our city. So with those parameters in place, uh, opening really response and statement from you on is, is what, what's the state of play with 5G in cities? What can you share with us? Well, as, as you say, it's a, a, a complex and an important subject area. The, um, the, the reality of the technology is, is each generation of phones, so the, the G in the terms, I'm moving from 3G through to 4, through to 5G, and you know, the research and development parts of the, the, the global telecommunications industry are already looking at 6G. 
Um, and, and the basic equation is um, each generation has faster internet uh, service, lower latency. So that's the delay between the signal getting from one point to another and a lot more bandwidth. So you can move a lot more data around. The price for that is for wireless communications, you have a shorter range. So 4G towers that we see at the sides of the road have a range of kilometers, whereas a 5G cell is gonna have a range of between two and 500 meters. So it, it changes fundamentally the, the, the kind of architecture and the infrastructure that's required for people, particularly over mobile phones, which, uh, you know, video telephony, you know, video and photograph upload, download and consumption uh, is driving large scale growth in, in the cellular industry. So it, it fundamentally changes potentially the public realm because 5G antennas will need to be within a few hundred meters of the consumer. And what that really means in reality is street lights, powered poles with CCTV cameras, roof space, bus shelters, traffic lights, all of those pieces of infrastructure that are already in existence provide height for, for coverage and for regulatory reasons and existing power supplies are prime real estate in effect for 5G small cells. That then starts to raise various questions of aesthetics, power consumption, radiation and various other things. So that there's a lot of design thinking going on. And to give you an idea of the scale, there are in somewhere in the region of 2.3 million streetlight poles and, and public lighting poles in Australia. The forecast across the industry is probably somewhere in the region of 750,000 of those could potentially have a 5G small cell. Now these will be primarily in metro areas, low orbit, low, low orbit satellite and some of the other technologies will be in my opinion, a better fit for, for regional and rural locations, uh, but certainly urban areas, CBDs, parks, event spaces, uh, that they'll all be prime candidates for 5G coverage. We certainly know, Ian, from, you know, experience that telecommunications providers, companies and local government, for example, local councils, uh, certainly have interesting relationships when it comes to infrastructure delivery and tearing up footpaths and, you know, servicing the consumer, of course. But that description there of essentially bringing the technology closer down to the pedestrian level in the public realm presents a new ball game. I mean, I don't, I, I don't want to be too dramatic here, but this is kind of fundamentally different, isn't it? It is. I mean, the, the, the larger towers are generally in industrial estates, away from residential areas, away from CBD and mixed-use public realm spaces and things like that. So, so you're absolutely right. This is now a different design exercise and a different functionality exercise at the local, as you say, pedestrian scale. So, so it is a, you know, a very, very different dimension now. I certainly have been observing over many years now, as we all have, I suppose, Ian, the aspiration of local councils planning and designing and ensuring that the public realm is of high quality. We have streetscape design guidelines, urban furniture guidelines. So we have the public realm highly designed from sort of a policy and, and you know, d design vision and aspiration perspective and I think it's something certainly that is in part delivery of service and quality of service 
you know, for its citizens, you know, the public realm is where a lot of taxpayers' money goes, whether it's fixing potholes or putting new park benches in. So it's, it's certainly an area where ratepayers' dollars, you know, uh, are very public. So therefore, the quality and experience is important. Dare I ask you the question, what could go wrong here? Can I, I know that's a tough question and, I, and I'm putting you on the spot, but what does bad look like? Um, mm-hmm. but more so for the purposes of circling back and making sure that we, we, we talk about what the good looks like, but what could go wrong in terms of what we need to keep a watching brief on? What a good question. I think that the start point for answering that is what what might trigger uh, things to go wrong. And I think you you alluded earlier to the relationship between the carriers and the asset owners. I think uh, a cooperative approach is essential and a failure to cooperate, you know, as is often the case, will lead to bad outcomes. So what what a lot of people don't realize, what a lot of asset owners don't realize are, you know, the extent to which the Telecommunications Act from 1997 gives wide ranging powers to carriers to occupy assets. Now, there's lots of provisions for how that should be managed and what a good outcome looks like, but they are, you know, very strong powers with very little recourse to say no. So the traditional asset owner view of, I won't allow somebody to come and do anything on my asset has actually changed from a telecommunications perspective. And that's because the government recognizes that people want good mobile coverage, they want good bandwidth, et cetera, et cetera. And 5G is the next stage of, of, of realizing that policy intent through, through legislation. So w- when we start to look at what bad looks like, there's a couple of different uh, perspectives. One is that coverage aspect. So Uh, If you take one of the primary use cases for 5G, because it's low latency, it's autonomous and semi-autonomous vehicles. If you've got uh, patchy coverage where you get really good coverage and then as you're driving along, the coverage drops out, that becomes a safety issue. It becomes a performance issue for the semi-autonomous vehicles. So that evolution into semi-autonomous and autonomous driving gets compromised. So you've got to have equal and equitable coverage. The equitable component becomes one of, you you shouldn't have a postcode lottery, if you like, that if you live in a certain location where houses are perhaps more expensive, you're more likely to get 5G coverage. Or if it's in a large CBD with the big end of town, you're more likely to get 5G coverage. So that that equity and uh, equality side of things is fundamentally important as well. The... The other way to look at it is from the aesthetic perspective. So, you know, most people who manage assets or work in telecommunications have seen those images of countries around the world where it's a free-for-all and there's cables and boxes all over, you know, public assets. And, you know, you, you wonder how anybody can navigate those to understand what, what connects to what. So when you think there's, you know, three primary carriers and streetlights are spaced, say, on average, 75 metres apart in urban areas, and they've got a range on average of two or 300 metres, it means for the carriers to get their uh, equitable and you know, um, consistent coverage across those areas, every pole is potentially going to have a piece of kit on. And potentially every pole has more than one piece of kit because there's not enough real estate for, for, for each of the carriers. So a bad outcome aesthetically is these things are covered in boxes and wires and, and, you know, on the ground are electrical transformers to make sure the power is regulated. So the, the asset owners really, if they accept the reality of this is coming, 
should be collaborating with the, the, the industry to, to design things appropriately and start thinking perhaps more about smart poles and, and different kinds of infrastructure uh, that, that may be able to better accommodate the aesthetic outcome of, of public areas. And a, you know, a great example are locations where you have events, so large parks where you've got bump and bump out type services and there's going to be an expectation that people can you know, in effect, have a secondary broadcast from their phone of the things they're experiencing on social media, it logically means you need good internet coverage, which means the, the combination of design, aesthetics, functionality are fundamentally important to preserve the attractiveness of those places so people want to go there. I can't help thinking about the Brisbane 2032 Olympics, Ian, um, just as a little use case for a moment. What's interesting for me is we know this thing is coming, yet it's still a decade away, but we know sometimes whilst technology may evolve very swiftly, the catch-up from a policy-making perspective and a whole range of other perspectives sometimes lags. Can I move us now to a bit of a conversation around the, the opportunity? And the reason I like the 2032 Olympics, just as an example, uh, and of course we have listeners that are not in Brisbane and they're scattered all over the world, but for those that don't know, Brisbane, Queensland will be hosting the 2032 Olympic and Paralympic Games. And it's a nice little test case because it's going to very much be in urban games. Um, It's going to be scattered across a region of at least 12 municipalities and, and beyond. And it's, I believe, from, from memory, uh, the only games that has had such a long lead time. So uh, I'd, love to, uh, I'd love to get your views, Ian, and maybe using Brisbane as a bit of an example because I'm a little bit biased, but what is the big opportunity here with 5G? Uh, and, and I bring up the Olympic Games in Brisbane just merely to sort of allow us to, you know, think tangibly about outcomes. But what would you share in terms of, the big opportunity here and why it is probably critical for local government municipalities to to be on the front foot with this. I share your view. I think it's a massive opportunity. Now, one one of the things that I learned working on the Commonwealth Games and, and something that was quite a profound experience, I think, for a lot of people involved is the event is massive and, and you've got lots of people coming into town and you're running you know, a whole different set of logistics and operations and everything else. And the critical thing is to give uh, the consumer the best possible experience. Now, the lesson for me, or one of the lessons was that the global audience is absolutely huge and the power of social media, non-accredited media and informal channels are very powerful. So one of my friends in the UK Um, To give you an example, phoned me one day during the Commonwealth Games because the nine o'clock news on the BBC, which is the the preferred news for for a lot of people, showed the hero shot along the foreshore of the Gold Coast and and, and it looked absolutely stunning. And he didn't realise that's where I lived. So it it was one of those things that the the imagery going around the world can be absolutely a game changer for perceptions, marketing tourism attraction, business attraction, a whole load of different things. So I think the the underlying networks that allow not only people to come here and promote the, you know, Brisbane and the and the you know the, the rest of Queensland and, and as you say the, the southeast Queensland sort of core uh, area 
of where, where the games will be hosted. But the, the, the kind of millions and billions of people will be consuming this around the world and, and taking a look at Brisbane and, and, and the surrounding areas is potentially, like I did, a place to come and live or maybe a place to go on holiday just to, to learn about it. Now, I think the, the, you know, going back to where some of the challenges are, the missed opportunity would be if you know, one of the councils has great 5G coverage and great internet services and another doesn't, because for those people that either visit you know, physically or visit virtually, the massive opportunity is to get people to very easily be able to experience lots of things around the region or the state and build up that not only the experience and the profile, but the, the, the you know, primary and secondary marketing off the back of that. So going back to my, my earlier point about coverage, quality and equity, one of the first things I think needs to happen, it needs to happen soon because you talk, we are talking about you know, underground services, conduits, pit and pipe networks, you know, the, the whole sort of architecture and, and, and everything that sits behind the asset. I would be doing an overlay now to look at where coverage exists, where there's opportunities to bring forward investments, where councils and the state government, the federal government can co-invest with carriers and basically try to give Southeast Queensland not only a you know, an internet coverage advantage, but a potentially a huge economic advantage that it's got telecommunication coverage and services that are you know, comparable with the best in the world. Uh, that, that would also massively help with the operations for the games. I mean, at Gold Coast uh, City Council, you know, one, one of the primary reasons for investing in our own uh, fiber optic network was to increase bandwidth for CCTV. So, yeah, we all know that the transport guys will need to manage the networks in real time. The, the amount of data flowing around the Olympics is, is absolutely huge. So having you know, wireless technology where someone doesn't need to connect to you know, hard infrastructure where you know, volunteers can be supported with real-time information and video footage, there's it, it, just millions and millions of use cases that will, that will be delivered at a massive scale for, for, for the games. Yeah. And look, not every city gets an Olympic Games. It is a rare use case for our average municipality out there. Ian, I imagine there's many that are possibly thinking that, you know, 5G isn't necessarily a, a priority for them to in, engage with. One of the things I do wonder is how the community is going to be part of this journey. I mean, I draw a sort of line of sight to New Zealand where we've seen cell towers burnt to the ground in opposition of 5G and the, the perceived health impact. So, you know, we, we, we still have a little bit of friction out there when it comes to 5G, uh, at, at least from the community engagement perspective, would you share some insights about how we need to engage potentially with the community, whether it being a risk management exercise or, you know, genuine engagement of, of opportunity, new jobs and sectors and small businesses leveraging sort of new, new use cases and things like that? What, um, what, what can you share with us on, on that front? I think, again, there's a couple of aspects there. There's the, the, the kind of... Um, uh, the, the abstract or conceptual layer, which is, uh, you know, internet uh, connectivity and bandwidth is, uh, a, a, you know, it can be a barrier to economic growth and success, and it's an enabler for economic growth, growth and success if you get it right. So I think people understanding and, and you know, those, those people involved in the engagement from government and, and from the telecommunication sector, I think need to draw 
you know, better examples for people to understand the, the, the relationship between internet services and economic prosperity. Because at the moment, I think they're left a little bit too much in the abstract. So some examples, you know, global examples would be great. And, and you, you know, some of us who have worked in this kind of environment understand you know, agglomeration and co-location benefits. So if you've got good telecommunications companies that need that kind of support infrastructure will tend to coalesce around it and then you can get additional value-add benefits of those people being in a similar location. So I think there's that, that abstract storytelling, what, what happens if you have bad internet and what happens if you have good internet kind of thing. And then I think it needs to be brought down to a very localized level where that there may be people who don't even realize they consume some of these services or they consume council services that rely on you know, fast telecommunications or whatever. So I think, it, I think it's about getting into some of the community groups, getting into schools, getting, getting people to tell us why they need good internet or why they don't think it's relevant and having a bit of a dialogue to get people to understand you know, your FPOS machine is running over an internet connection. So your real-time information screens at the transport nodes are, are consuming quite a large amount of bandwidth because the vehicles, the trains, the buses are sending information into a system which then transmits to you know, the, the, either the handheld device or a you know, piece of kit that tells them what's going on. So I think people need to sort of be given a lot more information about what the requirement is for this sort of thing. And then there needs to be some semi-technical but but easy to understand information to debunk some of the myths that are out there you know that when, when people are drawing a correlation between wireless internet and covid you kind of think well yeah there's, there's a gap and you know nature abhors a vacuum so if there's not enough information there people will fill that void with the things that suit their agenda so I, th I think it is about you know helping people understand it's already there it's already important um, what does that mean at the local level and if there's going to be 5G small cells all over urban areas, people need to understand what are, what are they, what do they do, are there any risks? If so, what you know, what can people do about it? And I think that would, using the Olympics as a, I mean, who who's not happy about having the Olympics? It's probably you know, most people would be aligning the internet consumption of hosting and publicising and, and running an Olympics with the need for that sort of technology is a you know, I, I can't think of a better way of engaging people to understand, you know, the relationship with te technology and day-to-day -day life. It's, it's a good point, Ian, about the engagement piece and particularly that issue around taking at times what is highly technical information that can be very much viewed as being a totally different language and really bringing that down into sort of consumable bite-sized pieces of, of information I would only imagine, and, you know, I've heard a little bit about this from cities, that some would perceive this not necessarily to be a priority issue that they can influence and maybe sitting there considering it to be more of someone else's role, whether it be state government or federal government, depending on which jurisdiction and country you're in. Do you feel, let me ask you a point blank question, if you can answer it. I understand if you can't, but if you were to sort of summarise our level of readiness when it comes to 5G in our cities, are we ready? The simple answer is no. I think each council is unique, as we know. Mm. Um, each has, you know, it all, all do broadly similar things, but in, the, in their own individual ways to re, you know, reflect the, you know, the nature of their place. And that's perfectly reasonable. 
But I think some cities have you know, taken the view that they want to bring 5G in as quickly as possible because they see community and economic and other benefits from doing so. So I've probably got their head around the implications a little. Some councils at the other end of the scale just don't understand it. And, and in between, there's a whole load of, of, of different opinions. My personal view, based on a bit of experience and, and you know, more recently talking to a few councils, is there's a whole load of components in the Telecommunications Act that they don't understand. And they don't understand the, the rationale behind the powers that the carriers have and, and what that means. And, and to give you a, a, you know, a fairly straightforward example, uh, a lot of councils own and operate park lighting. And as I said earlier, parks are a, you know, a perfectly logical location to put 5G because you know, there might be events there or you know, there's lots of people there generally. So it's from a carrier perspective, it's a location they want to provide services. Now, under the Act, they can issue a land access notice, which is very hard to go against. Uh, you know, there's a very small range of criteria that allows you to um, refuse it. So it's almost a deemed approval at the point of issuing the land. There's a 10-day statutory period to respond. And uh, after that period, the, the carrier can come and install equipment on, on your, say, streetlight or your, your park lighting. Now, when that happens, that park pole technically becomes part of the ecosystem supporting telecommunication services. And under the Act, you're not allowed to tamper with that, whether, whether intentionally or by accident. And there'll, there'll be provisions and expectations under the Act and, and, and under various uh, commercial contracts that the carriers guarantee certain levels of uptime, downtime and service to their customers. Now, if the parks maintenance team goes and shuts down the power circuit that the 5G is connected to on the streetlight because they want to do barbecue repairs, it's technically a breach of the Telecommunications Act. So inadvertently, councils could be disrupting services which may have detriment to the community, uh, but also they're potentially going to get into a bit of trouble. So understanding things like that and getting to a point of, even if not commercial, some kind of binding agreement with the, the carriers that says, we recognise you can come onto our assets, but these are some of the things that we are concerned about. These are some of the things we'd like to do. These are some of the things we'd like to consider around aesthetics and you know, the number of things hanging off of a streetlight pole or something like that. And there's also, again, in terms of that level of understanding, there's, there's a willingness for, for carriers to, to pay for occupancy of an asset. It's no, it's no different to you know, having a license to occupy in any other kind of asset. Now, where some councils are, are sort of seeing that as a potential, potentially significant revenue, but my advice to the councils I'm speaking to at the moment is just, just be clear about what the net revenue is, because the headline figure is you know, potentially attractive, but then you've got to have somebody administering a contract, somebody working with the asset management guys, doing all the notice period work and everything else. So it's, it's actually quite a complex environment. So part of, part of the assessment for councils, I think, in terms of how ready they are is what's their risk appetite? What's the commercial appetite? How important is aesthetic you know, quality? Uh, how much do they want to do themselves? Do they want to outsource it? You know, there's, there's a whole myriad of, of considerations there, which I genuinely don't think many councils have uh, you know, come to terms with. And, and, and that's it's not a criticism in any way. I think it's very new. And um, as the demand and the number of 5G enabled handsets grows, this real estate play is going to become more and more significant. So at the moment, it's a few poles here and there to some degree. It could, it could end up being hundreds a week for some councils that own significant amounts of infrastructure. 
So that potentially is a significant missed opportunity to work together with the industry and potentially you know, could get them into a bit of hot water if they don't realize some of the implications that come with hosting that infrastructure. Yeah, it certainly sounds like I feel like we're on this precipice where you're ready and you're primed to engage or it's going to be done to you. And having a level of readiness is going to be key. And as you say, potentially when it when it gets turned on or it comes, it, you know, that old that old saying, when it rains, it pours. I've just noticed around the streets where our office is in, in Brisbane here, the notices being zip tied to the phone poles, you know, by subcontractors saying that this pole's been identified for 5G telecommunications on behalf of a carrier. That's just one pole. When they start adding up, you can, I can only imagine that it, it'll come thick and thin. So in terms of that readiness, Ian, I would imagine that we've got local authorities that are only having this conversation for the first time now or, or listening in or, you know, wondering, you know, what we might do. We've got those that are more mature and probably have an understanding of a position or a statement. They've had lawyers sort of, you know, prepare the briefing note for the mayor or the CEO. And as you say, a lot in between. Is there is there some sense of kind of the first three or five steps in this you know you've referred to issues around risk issues around revenue issues around approvals issues around quality of urban design and public realm it's quite a multi-discipline multi-thematic solution this new generation of telecommunications it's it's going to touch on a lot of departments internally how does one start and where does it start within within the local council. I mean, who takes the lead on this? It's it, it could sort of, it could go either way and indeed get so complicated and touch on many, many elements of, of the organisation that it slips through the cracks as well. Yeah, I, I, honestly, I don't think it matters who takes the lead uh, as, as long as they've, you know, they can you know, work across different departments. Now, in, in some councils I'm speaking to, it's, it's the asset managers that want to get their head around this and understand where the, you know, the risk and opportunity is. In some cases, it's the smart city proponents who are keen to bring forward 5G and, and, and take the asset managers on a, on a journey. So I, I think it's just critical that somebody owns the agenda and puts a little bit of time and effort in. I think the in terms of a process, the most important thing is to, as I sort of alluded to, to define what's important to council. So the asset managers, I'm sure, will have a view. The economic development team will have a view, the smart city team, et cetera, et cetera. You know, different local councillors will have a different view on what a good outcome is. So I think there needs to be some mapping, if you like, of what the priorities are from a policy perspective for council. Is it maximise revenue? Is it minimise or maximise public, you know, the, the public realm appeal? And then there's some commercial considerations. And then there's a whole load of having a bit of a look at your policies and processes and maintenance regimes. It, you know, as I said earlier, that the simple fact of to go and close off a circuit, you'd have to give a, a, a number of days notice to a carrier if they're there. Do you even know that they're there? So you know, there's all of those sorts of things that need to be considered. And, and it may well be for some councils, they say, look, we, we're just not going to touch it. We're going to take a risk that we'll get something wrong and we'll deal with that when and if it happens. My advice to those councils is get a bit of advice before you make that decision so that you're you know, you're at least aware of what the potential risks are and what happens if those risks become genuine issues. And, and I think when, um, when councils start to realise 
some of the implications, it may change their view of, you know, being, being that kind of laissez-faire approach, as I say. Ian, a question that's quite specific I'd be keen to ask you is around any observations you have in terms of local authorities working together on this? Is it sort of every council for themselves? Is there any collaboration that is either happening or would that be a good approach? I'm just trying to get my head around this idea of 530 plus local authorities around Australia and each and every one of them having to go alone on this. Is there any, is there a sense of support or moving forward or how would you respond to that particular issue i think there's some dialogue and there are some clusters of councils that are are, are considering what what this means however i'm not getting a sense and maybe i just haven't come across it but i'm not getting a sense that councils generally either singular or, or, or together understand the telecommunications act sufficiently to um to, to put a response together now i think ultimately it would benefit industry and it would benefit public sector uh, if there were some standardised documents, some boilerplate contracts, and you know a, a kind of a shared understanding of a way of doing business. Now, I don't think that gets in the way of the you know local discretion for, for each council and each you know division within those councils. But I think the thing that can't be avoided is each council is going to need to work out what's important and have a look at their own policies and procedures to make sure. Yeah, whichever approach they take, they, they're actually structured in a way that they can live up to the promise. So I think, yes, there is a, there is a fantastic opportunity for councils to work together. And you know, Southeast Queensland is a primary example of that for, uh, for the Olympics. Uh, and and you know, if I were running a telco and you know, a bunch of councils got together and said, we want to help you, you know, deliver what you're trying to do and you know, let's come to an arrangement, I think that would be absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Ian, a quick question before we start wrapping up. We, we certainly know uh, our existing built environment, you know, whether it be CBDs or uh, inner city areas, suburban areas as well, of course, have a lot of existing infrastructure and, and you know, light poles and things like that. There's also a lot of growth development happening in greenfield sites, a lot of, uh, a lot of greenfield urban development happening now and of course still in the pipeline lots more to come where does where does sort of local government sit when it comes to being the approval authority for greenfield development and subdivision are are there are there levers there that councils can pull should that be part of their readiness as well those that that do have greenfield land banks within their jurisdiction yeah, I think I think for greenfield development, also read brownfield urban redevelopment. Uh, I, I think there's definitely an opportunity for councils to look at their design coding and their cross section designs and all of that sort of thing to, you know, to make sure if if for no other reason, as we've all seen, I think you mentioned it very early on in the discussion. You know, people coming along and digging up existing footpaths and things like that, and and you know, we've all we've all had that frustration moment where something's new and six months later someone's putting a a circular saw through it and, and, and cutting a trench through it. So I think some of those designs to make sure if we know that 5G small cells are going to be on street lights, wouldn't it make sense to have comms conduit and electrical conduit running in parallel servicing the street lights? So if the if the cross section, as I've seen in a number of cases, has obviously the power going to the street light, 
but the comms conduits on the other side of the footpath that's inevitably going to lead, going to, lead to, to works in the public realm. Nightmare. So, yeah. And, and, and if you, you know, if you take a, you know, an example of an Olympic games again, to get all those connections to where they need to be, that's a lot of work. So I think there are ways of, you know, not in a commercial sense, just in terms of planning guidelines, urban design guidelines, as I say, engineering cross sections, just to do a bit of work to, to think through, well, you know, are we, collectively enabling this in the best way we can or are we loading up future frustration well it looks like there's a lot of fun to come there's also a lot of sharp objects to navigate so to speak Mm. and uh, we hope more broadly as an industry we'll be able to facilitate and engage in some meaningful grown-up dialogue as we as we sort of work through this but for now ian we're gonna uh, we're gonna have to call it to an end with podcast i'm i'm assuming that you're spending a fair bit of time with councils at the moment starting to sort of navigate these type of these type of issues for, for our audience that might have a browser nearby they can plug in your website details and learn a little bit more can you share that with us yep so completeurban.com.au is the is the company website and we've got a couple of published articles on there and you know we've got a new product sheet for you know helping councils with 5g readiness and uh, you're, you're quite right i'm talking to half a dozen councils currently you know, recently signed one up to to start helping with that you know, preparedness really it, it's kind of what you what, what are you trying to achieve and how you know how are your policies and processes geared towards achieving that so uh, i think there is a there is a recognition that, that, that you know there's there's something that needs to be resolved so yeah if anybody wants to get in touch i'm more than happy to have a chat or respond to an email or you know, any and all things yeah absolutely and and look readiness is is certainly a, a strong theme of our work at the smart cities council if there's if there's anything that a local authority and city can do is sort of at least be ready to engage and respond to questions and at least be part of the conversation as opposed to sort of tech and data being done to you. So a really, a really fascinating conversation, Ian, and I imagine one that we could probably have on a regular basis in the, in the coming years as it all evolves. But for now, um, thanks so much for joining us on the Smart Cities Chronicles. Thanks for the opportunity. It's great to have a chat. And for our listeners, that was Ian Hatton, who is the smart city lead at Complete Urban. He's provided the details there, completeurban.com.au. And for our listeners that aren't subscribing to the Chronicles, you can do so. Head to your favourite podcast platform. We're pretty much on most of those. Just look for the Smart Cities Chronicles. You'll find us there. You can also head to our website, smartcitieschronicles.com. My name is Adam Beck, your host of the Chronicles. We look forward to bringing you another episode really soon. Thanks so much for listening in and stay safe.